The Wee Grey Woman by Ethna Carberry. His cabin stood by the side of a burn, into which the sally trees dripped from either side, making a thick fringe of green that met overhead and cast dappled shadows on the clear water, when the sun stood high and fierce in the heavens. Little ripples broke in white bubbles around the stones that made the crossing places, and the speckled trout darted like tiny silver spears through their hunts below the overhanging banks. It was a tranquil, lonely spot, eerie too, in the autumn twilight, when the slow creeping mists rose up from the bog for miles around, and many were the tales told of an evening, by the folk living on the highland, of lights that flashed all over the bog at the very moment that Jamie Boyson set his candle in the cottage window to guide the wee grey woman up the rugged loaning to her seat in the chimney corner. Once it happened that the wild young fellows of Glenwary came in the dead of night to play a trick on Jamie. They stole over the stepping stones of the burn and noiselessly reached the one-paned window, half hidden by thatch in which the light gleamed. A red turf fire blazed on the hearth, lit up the interior of the old man's kitchen. It shone on the battered ancient dresser, and on the store of carefully kept delf that had been his mother's. For Jamie had the name of being cleanly and thrifty in his ways. The hearth was carefully swept, the flat stones at front and sides whitened by a practised hand, and no ragged streaks wandered over the edges onto the clay floor beyond. A three-legged stool stood in front of the fire, placed there for convenience of the unearthly visitant, who, Jamie said, came nightly to sit and rest herself by the greasock, until the black cock should crow in the rafters above the settle-bed, invariably awaking him at the same moment that the wee grey woman got warning to leave. That was why he could never get a right look at her, he lamented. Sometimes he opened his eyes in time, to see the flutter of her grey cloak as she passed out of his door. And once he caught a gleam of red. It was a red hood she wore, not like anything that any mortal ever saw before, but just as if a big scarlet tulip had been crushed down around her head, with all the leaves sticking out round her face. And his blood always curdled when she gave a cry, going over the threshold, as if she was being dragged away into some dreaded torment from which she had had a respite. It would break the heart in your breast to hear it, just for all the world, like the whine of a dog when there's a death around, he would say. But no one could get him to commit himself as to a theory about the comings and goings of the wee woman. Whether he fancied her a friendly denizen of fairyland, or a poor wandering ghost draining her purgatory for her own sake, or the sake of some loved and living, the inquisitive people of the bogside could never learn. Yet, night after night, the hearth was swept, and the still place that she might have had her rest until dawn broke in a flame of gold and pale chilly green over the hilltops. So the ghostly story spread, as such stories will, through the country, finding by turns sympathiser and sceptic alike, who yearned, though fear of the supernatural kept most of them away, for a peep through Jamie's window, before the black cock gave the signal. But the young fellows from Glenwary, daring and mischievous as they were, had made up their minds to solve the mystery, and nothing daunted, holding their breath steadily, 
they drew close to the little window and out of the thick blackness of the last night hour glared into the haunted kitchen. The firelight flickered fitfully at first, so that their eyes, half blinded with the darkness, saw nothing save shadows. Then, suddenly, a gleam shot from the heart of the dying turf and showed a vision that drove them back from the window, saddened and ashamed. It was only the old man asleep in his settle bed, his thin, wrinkled profile outlined like a cameo against the background of dark wood, and the patient old hands that were so gentle and capable folded upon his breast as when he had laid down to sleep. After that, the wee grey woman might come and go, without dread of being watched or disturbed, and among the Glenwary lads, Jamie found a set of stalwart partisans whose judgment in his favour dared not be gainsaid. He was not altogether devoid of occupation and amusement in his lonely existence. The little one-roomed cabin was as tidy as a woman might have kept it, and though he harboured neither cat nor dog, during one winter at least, the severest winter known for many years in that locality, he had a pet, and the pet was a cricket. Imported from a neighbouring fireside, he had trained it with the utmost patience and skill until the diminutive dusty-looking object learned to jump out from behind the big pot in the chimney corner at his call. The story of his having accomplished such a marvel scarcely gained credence. It was not to be compared to that of his ghostly guest, but the country children cherished it and repeated it in wide-eyed wonder when they gathered round their elders' knees before the unwelcome bedtime, while the more superstitious asserted that it was the wee grey woman come to bide with Jimmy Boyson by day in another guise. It certainly looked uncanny enough, hop-hopping over the floor, chirping in a shrill, faint treble to his deeper intonation, and when he lifted it, creeping into the shelter of his hand, as a home bird might that is known and loved and trusted in the kind guardianship. But once upon a time, Jimmy Boyson had need of neither ghost nor cricket for company. That was in the days of his early manhood, when, stalwart, supple and strong, he led the boys of Crabilly to victory on many a hard-fought field of a Sunday, proving himself a champion to be proud of, in throwing the shoulder stone and wheeling the cannon against the athletic Grinwary lads, with big Dan O'Hara at their head. Then, where was his equal to be found at dancer christening? Why, half the girls in the country were in love with him, and hopelessly too, as they learned to admit to their own sad hearts that fluttered so uncomfortably under the Sunday kerchiefs when he passed, his black head erect and his shoulders squared like a militia major's without a look at one of them, up the chapel aisle to his seat next to his mother in the old family pew. The family pew held something else beside his mother, something the very sight of which was enough to bring the red blood in a rush to the roots of his curly dark hair and make his heart almost leap out of his breast for gladness, something that was small and fair and blue-eyed, half hidden behind his mother's ample form, and scarcely lifting her white lids from the beach she was passing through her fingers. She was no stranger to him. He had many opportunities of watching her pale sweetness by his own fireside at night, without embarrassing her with that burning gaze of his under the disapproving eyes of all the congregation. 
but he was wont to say it to himself, as a sort of justification that little Rosie at her prayers taught him more about heaven and holiness than the priests could do with all of his preaching. His brother Hugh used to joke him often and often about his fancy for the little orphan girl whom his mother had saved from the poor house, and Jamie's brow would glow with the angry red that warned Hugh's tongue to stop and the laughter to die out of his merry brown face. There were only the two of them left to his mother, and one took little Rosie into his life as a sister, while the other, whom the country lads in general had called a poor pale wisp of a thing, became his all, his world, his gateway of paradise. How the love for her grew up in his heart was a mystery to him. Perhaps it took root as a little child, the evening she came home to them, she laid her flaxen head on the bashful lad's broad shoulder and would not be parted from him till sleep stole on her unawares and released the tiny hands from their grasp on his strong ones. Or perhaps it came later as he learned to watch delightedly her deft, gentle household ways and heard her crooning to herself over her flowers in the rare leisure moments the active, bustling mother allowed. There was an old song he was very fond of singing about Lord Edward an old song she loved to listen to, and he was always sure of a grateful glance from the shy eyes when of a winter's night he favoured the little circle around the hearth. Sometimes tired with the day's hard work, she would rest her head against the wall with a low sigh of weariness. She must often be tired, he thought. Those little feet had run about so nimbly since early morning, and the little red hands had washed and baked without a moment's pause. But please God, that would all soon be ended when his wife should reign over a home of her own and he had taken her into the shelter of his strong arms forevermore. Yet no word of this crossed his lips, though to the desire that felt his heart beat like a strong ceaseless wave within his breast, giving him an almost unbearable pain and he never dreamt but that she knew. In the very effort to control himself, his voice was curiously harsh when he spoke to her, and while the poor child trembled at the rude accents, her faltering reply aroused in the big tender-hearted fellow a wild feeling that was half exquisite pity and half hate. Ah, if only he had spoken then, the grim tragedy of his life might have been spared him. One bleak night in autumn, a sound outside drew him to the door, and opening it, he stood listening. John Conan's calves are in the clover field, he said. Go and put them out. Rose lifted her timid blue eyes. Do you hear me? he asked. But I'm afraid, she murmured. It's so dark and... He pointed his finger to the open door and the black stormy night outside. Go, he repeated fiercely, turning to his chair and lifting his pipe off the shelf. And the girl passed into the darkness without another word. What madness was on him that he had spoken to the little girl and sent her out on such an errand? He asked himself when she had gone. He had been conscious of a strange, sore sensation all day, since, at Crabelli Fair that afternoon, Tom McMullen had proposed a match between her and his son Jack, one of the wildest young scamps in the whole countryside, and the unreasoning jealousy grew and grew until he had wrecked his pain and vengeance on his poor Rosie's unoffending head. Oh, am I not the queer ungrateful fool, he muttered, to treat the wee lass in this way. 
An hour passed, he waiting every moment to hear her footfall on the threshold and his mother speculating that she had gone in for a gossip to John Conan's. At last he could bear his regret and this suspense no longer and he went out to seek her. It was only a step or two to the clover field and reaching the low stone wall he called to her eagerly in the darkness. The startled calves still enjoying their forbidden banquet lowed back in answer. He vaulted the gate, every step of the way familiar to him by night as by noon, and called anxiously and long. Then he remembered his mother's surmise and turned across the field to Conan's. There was no little Rosie sitting with the laughing girls grouped together in the corner over a quilting frame, and in response to his husky demand for a couple of Conan's young sons volunteered to accompany him on his search. Hugh, his brother, being away for the night in a market town many miles off. He walked on, quickly, in the direction of the bog, guided only by his intimate knowledge of the treacherous path that would like a serpent across the marshy windswept surface. He heard the small waves beat against each other with a faint sad sound, while overhead not one solitary star glimmered to delight his heart with hopefulness. Through the terrible night and into the dawn, his frantic search continued, calling her name in a hoarse agony that wrung the souls of those who had heard him. Rosie, Rosie, my little girl, it's Jamie Collin. Ah, come home, can't ye? And don't be hiding there. Don't ye hear me, darling? It's Jamie, and the supper's waiting on us. Let Conan's calves go. They're always a trouble to somebody, but you, you come home. Here, take my hand stretching out his arm into the empty shadows. Take it, love, and don't be afeard. Nothing can touch ye, pulse on my heart, when I'm beside ye. Rosie, Rosie! And so on through the dreary hours over the wild bogland, his voice rang in pitiful entreaty, until jagged streaks of golden red flamed like trailing banners in the east, and the birds, wide awake, took up in a chorus, clear-tongued and grateful, the morning song. But alas, for him, whose songbird had flown afar, and for whom the dawn henceforth should hold no radiance, nor the rose-flushed mellow evening any passion. Yet his frantic cry broke in upon the happy choir, and the blackbird and thrush from hedge and beech tree watched him staggering home in the sunshine, murmuring through lips that scarcely knew the words they uttered. Rosie, Rosie, girl, dear, come home. Some hours later, a turf cutter, crossing the burn to his work, caught a gleam of something bright under the cold running water. It was little Rosie's fair head lying against the stones in the shade of a dripping sally tree, whether through the darkness, blinded by her sorrow, she had wandered to her death. Jamie Boyson aged suddenly after that, when the friends of his boyhood had grown into sturdy middle-aged men, strong and hearty, he was already old, with a gloom upon him that no smile was ever known to lighten. In time, when his mother died and Hugh had married, he grew unable to bear the sounds of children's chatter through the rooms where he had once hoped to see his own little ones at play, and came to live his life alone in the cabin by the burnside, from whence he could watch the very spot where poor Rosie's gentle head had lain under the clear, cold ripples. So the country folk, noting his absent dim blue eyes and wondering talk about the wee grey woman, grew to believe that it was Rosie's ghost 
come to bear him company until the call should sound for him and his broken and desolate heart should find peace. That was many, many years ago and perhaps they have met long since in heaven where Jamie Boyson, young and straight and strong again with all the bitterness gone from his heart has taken little Rosie in his arms and told her the truth at last. <laughs>